Hello, I'm Jim Cuno, president of the J. Paul Getty Trust. Welcome to Art and Ideas, a podcast in which I speak to artists, conservators, authors, and scholars about their work. To really read into the fragment that you have in front of you and to imagine the rest of what was the whole text is really romantic and an enjoyment of Tekagami viewing. In this episode, I speak with Getty visiting scholar Akiko Wali and Professor Edward Kamens about Japanese calligraphy albums called Tekagami. Highly popular during the Edo period, dating from 1615 to 1868, Tekagami is an album of calligraphy fragments. It can include poems, stories, religious scriptures, historical documents, and personal correspondences known collectively as kohitsu, or antique writing. These albums were the subject of a March 2021 colloquium of the Getty Research Institute titled Tekagami as and Fragments, organized by Akiko Wali, the Maud I. Kearns Associate Professor of Japanese Art at the University of Oregon, Eugene, and Edward Kamens, the Sumitomo Professor of Japanese Studies at Yale University. I recently discussed the history and character of Tekagami with Akiko and Ed. Akiko and Ed, many thanks for joining me on this podcast. Ed, what is a Tekagami? A Tekagami is a calligraphy album, and most Tekagami are bound in the format that we would call an accordion, or sometimes it's called a leporello, I think, in the European tradition. It can be unfolded to see all the pages side by side, but usually each opening would just be flipped one uh, panel at a time to view samples of calligraphy that have been uh, assembled by a professional appraiser who has verified that the sample is a verifiable, authentic, or reasonably authentic copy of the written calligraphy by some noted person of the past. Akiko? Tekagami, if you were to translate literally, it means a mirror of hands. So these calligraphies have been cut out of some prior book or something and put together on this page. That's right. That's why we, in the scholars program this year, uh, associated them in so many different ways with the concepts of fragments and fragmentariness. They are indeed cutouts. And for that reason, they don't read as a coherent text uh, as such. But I think of them more as a kind of meta text, probably one way that makes sense of looking at a tekagami in its entirety is to think of it as displaying a history of the practice of calligraphy in Japan. So just one last question on this. Each of the cutout pieces has on it a script made by a separate calligrapher. Yes, and usually not necessarily uh, a script or a text originally written by that person. Many of the samples might be copies of portions of a Buddhist sutra, uh, might be a letter or a portion of a diary, and very frequently they're literary texts because until the 16th and 17th century, 
when in fact tekagami come to be quite popular, printing was not widely used in Japan. And so to transmit a text, one had to copy it. So for example, for one poet to pass along texts of poetry to another generation, they had to be copied by hand. Yeah, Akiko, what is the earliest mention of the term tekagami? And, and is it a strictly a Japanese phenomenon, or was it found in China or Korea? So the earliest mention of the word tekagami comes up in the 16th century. The idea of cutting or dismantling a collection of calligraphy started to happen with the popularity of tea drinking practice. When the rustic tea uh, drinking started to be very popular in the 16th century, what happened was people wanted to have calligraphy as decoration in the alcove inside a tea room. And in order to make it into a hanging scroll, it had to be cut into pieces that was appropriate sized for hanging, and it couldn't be a book. So that was the beginning. So the earliest mention of tekagami actually comes up in a document uh, by a tea master named Sen Norikyu, who lived uh, between early 16th century to um, end of 16th century. And he sort of lists all these uh, items that will be good for tea room decoration. And one of the things he mentioned was tekagami. So that's the earliest mention of tekagami. And we actually don't know exactly what sort of format that tekagami took. And the earliest mention of tekagami as we know today, the album format with all these fragments, comes up in early 17th century in a Japanese-Portuguese dictionary that mentions the word tekagami and the definition that it gives is very much uh, what we think of tekagami when we hear the word. And in terms of this sort of collecting of calligraphy into an album format, uh, it was already practiced in China by the 8th century. But many of the pieces that were collected were uh, stone rubbings of uh, a famous calligraphy. So in terms of the format that we see in Japan, of these handwritten calligraphy collected into an album format um, has not been found in other places in East Asia. Was the reading uh, an oral experience or uh, a visual experience? That's a, a difficult question to answer because we have records of people having a party and looking at tekagami when it was first produced, but we don't actually know what sort of viewing um, that took place. And in some cases, there are fragments, for instance, of a Buddhist chant that has notation on how to read them. So theoretically, one could say a few lines from it, or many of them are famous poems, so one could read aloud. But the speculation is that for the most part, it's more of a visual experience and reading experience. Was it read as a group experience or as a singular private experience? So that too could have been different experiences. So we have record of group viewing. So we know that something like that went on. But for instance, if it was used in a tea room, tekagami would be placed open or closed on a shelf. And maybe none of the guests actually took it off the shelf to look at it. So it's more of a display. But tekagami could have been used as uh, one's own pleasure or for calligraphy practice. 
So in those cases, it's more of a solitary experience. And um, in fact, there is a, a national treasure, Tekagami, in a museum called the Idemitsu Museum of Art in Japan uh, that has a title called the uh, Friends from Unseen Past. So in that respect, it's more of an idea of you as a viewer being among these past cultural celebrities and great calligraphers and being in almost like a party situation. And that could be also group experience or, you know, more of a solitary experience, imagining yourself being among these group of great past people. And were these fragments taken from a complete written document? Did they make sense, one fragment next to the other fragment, or did that not matter? It really did not matter. The arrangement is more of a visual effect. Um, and there could be some connection. For instance, you know, one page could be poems that could be linked together thematically, for instance. But that was not necessarily a requirement. The convention, in fact, was more based on social status of the calligraphers. So, you know, there was a convention to start the calligraphic album with uh, 8th century imperial couple, but then it was more about the imperial emperors and imperial family and courtiers, warriors, women, monk poets, etc. So it was more about how to group the calligraphers together in almost like a, a spatially so that the right kind of people are brought together on the same page. I see. Now, Ed, I, I gather there was a boom in Tekagami during the Edo period, which is 1615 to 1868. Tell us about that, and why was there such a boom at that time? Right. So, as Akiko explained, the origins of the practice of collecting and displaying calligraphy fragment texts lies in the culture of the tea ceremony. But something that coincides with this development are social and economic changes, the rise of the merchant class, their gathering of wealth, and the increase uh, in literacy, especially uh, among women. So to demonstrate their literary knowledge and good taste, and to provide, say, the daughter of a wealthy family, either in the uh, samurai or merchant class, with a very admirable and very special item for her trousseau uh, on the occasion of her wedding, uh, a tekagami might be ordered and made precisely for that purpose. Because women of those classes were increasingly highly literate, also it would be desirable for them to demonstrate skill in calligraphy. We think that these are among the reasons why we see uh, the increased production and circulation of tekagami at that time. Do we have any records of there being ordered, made to order, as it were? Um, as far as I understand, not, not from the 17th century, but for 19th century, there is a tekagami that we know the provenance of, and it was uh, uh, commissioned for the wedding of a former Tokugawa shogunate's daughters uh, when she was uh, married. So we have an example like that. But that's in early Meiji period, so it's past the period that we're uh, mostly focusing on. 
The other reason why um, scholars believe that tekagami were produced as a trousseau item is because miniature tekagami is sometimes included for a uh, 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 Hina doll, the, the imperial doll, uh, which for the most elaborate ones often come with a variety of miniature trousseau items for the princess, for the doll, and sometimes miniature tekagami is included in it. So it was uh, common enough as a practice to be included in children's toys. Why was the 8th century emperor Shomu and empress Komio so closely linked to tekagami? Um, the exact reason uh, is a, a bit of a mystery. And also when that practice uh, started, Shomu and Komyo were 8th century imperial couple who became very popular as accomplished calligraphers. And their pieces were highly coveted by calligraphy fans. There were certain conventions for tekagami assemblage. And one was to group the calligraphers and calligraphies based on the social status of the calligraphers. And the other was to begin with Shomu and Komyo's calligraphy. But what we know is by the 18th century, this pairing at the beginning was understood to be something that is auspicious and very appropriate for wedding gifts, so including wedding torso. Was there a particular time when there was a flowering of the production of tekegami, both in the quality, the visual quality of the tekegami, but in the sheer volume of the tekegami? Um, in terms of quality, the booms really started in the 17th century. And it started off among the imperial family and courtiers among the imperial court, and then it expanded to warrior class and then the common people. But in terms of amount, what we have today, many of them were from latter half of the Edo period. But, you know, it's actually difficult to identify the date of these tekagami because oftentimes these tekagami were assembled after uh, enough number of calligraphy fragments were amassed. And sometimes earlier tekagami might have been disassembled into new tekagami. So the uh, history of each tekagami is very complicated. But we know that the trend really continued all the way to the end of Edo and even into the uh, modern period, which is the Meiji period. And in fact, some people still practice tekagami assembling today. Are there examples of uh, tekagami that have the, uh, as a text a particular poem, a poem that is uh, valued because of the poet or because of the, the legacy of the poem? Yes, there is a trio of highly regarded uh, great calligraphers from the early 17th century, one of whom is Konoe Nobutada, for example, and any piece of writing that can be attributed to him would be especially highly prized. Um, you asked about uh, Emperor Shomu and Empress Komyo. A verifiable, authentic example, if one could be found, or even the high-quality copies of Emperor Shomu's uh, so-called large character uh, writing, which is always uh, going to be a, an excerpt from a Buddhist sutra, those are in and of themselves highly valued. A scholar from Japan 
Unno Keisuke, with whom both Akiko and I have worked, when he opened up the first page of our Tekagamijo in the Bainiki Library at Yale and looked at this Ojomu, this large character piece of writing attributed to Shomu. He said, wow, you know, the value of this alone is probably greater than everything else that's in the album. In addition, certain poets, such as the great poet from the late 12th, early 13th century, Fujiwara no Teika, who is known for extremely eccentric brush writing style, and whose style was then also imitated and highly influential in later schools of calligraphy, those samples are very highly desirable. There are also many that are truly inauthentic out there. You know, I think I've asked this question before in a slightly different way, but I want to ask it again because I think it's so interesting. Take us head back to the formal properties of Tekagami. Do the text fragments of Tekagami ever tell a poetic story in and of itself, or is their attraction strictly visual? Well, I think that the attraction and interest is primarily visual, and that when we talk about reading a Tekagami, as I said earlier, I think we have to think about reading in a kind of meta-level, meta-dynamic. As a literary scholar, and I study classical poetry of the kind we were just talking about, of course, we want to know what is in the sample. What does it say? Are we seeing, for example, a variant transmission version of any given poem? This has been largely, until relatively recently, what Japanese scholars have been investigating in their work on tekagami. But more recently, there has been the raising of the question, so how can we think of these as integrated uh, entities? And I think that the poetic story is about how such and such text was written in such and such a way by some named person. What I find so interesting, again, is that the content is not what is relating one sample that might be in a page next to another. It is that other set of stories about the identity of who wrote it in the first place. Maybe what might have been their interest in that particular uh, text. Were they copying this Buddhist Sutra for some particular devotional purpose? Were they copying uh, those poems from such and such an anthology uh, for their own study, to emulate them, to pass them on to the next generations, and so forth. So in that sense, what the text is about might have some significance, but what is superseding that is whose hand is it supposed to be? And there is a kind of romance in the idea that one is looking at if not the actual traces of the brush that was held by an 8th century emperor or empress or a 13th century poet, that you're looking at a faithful copy. And so you're getting as close as you possibly could to the moment when they inscribed that ink and those words on that piece of paper. So as one pages through the album, one sees such a great variety of different styles of calligraphy. As I've said, from the highly disciplined 
very tightly controlled kind of writing to the most extremely cursive styles that are very, very difficult to decipher, even sometimes by experts. So I think that that visual experience of seeing that array of styles and the history of writing and calligraphic practice that they speak to is, to my mind, a very poetic story. Akiko, uh, is the visual attraction of Tekigami limited to the writing of the text fragments, or does it extend to the interplay between text fragment and support sheet, that is, the sheet of paper to which the text fragments are attached and which often have images on them, like cloud formations or evocations of mountains? Yes, I think the paper support is very important. As you mentioned, many of these um, fragments come with uh, lush paper decoration with colorful underdrawings to use of um, precious materials like gold and silver. So that was very much a point of appreciation. And also, although it was not necessarily um, required to match the underdrawing and what you inscribe on top, but there was always a potential to do so. So to kind of think about what the calligrapher was thinking in arranging the calligraphy on a particular piece of paper was really part of calligraphy appreciation. So without considering the paper, you know, you are only half appreciating the calligraphy in one sense. But in terms of how one spaced the calligraphy, is the poem in two line or one line? Are there other notations in the margin? All of these things were uh, a point of appreciation. In a sense, to really read into the fragment that you have in front of you and to imagine the rest of what was the whole text is really romantic and an enjoyment of Tekagami viewing. Ed? Sometimes what one can learn about the paper from that underlying design or ornamentation can be understood as evidence that might tell us more about the origin of the the copy and the original text itself. The example I'm thinking of is the disaggregated and widely scattered elements of a text that's known as the Todaiji Gire. It's a collection of pages that were copies uh, made by a poet and scholar named Minamoto no Toshiori in 1120. And he was copying the contents of a late 10th century collection of Buddhist tales but he did it on very beautiful papers that have a stenciled design, four different stenciled designs made with mica that were printed onto the paper. Then columns were drawn for writing the text across each page. And so the suggestion of that special quality and special design of that paper, uh, which is not just your ordinary note paper that you would pick up for calligraphy practice, suggests that he was probably making this copy yet again for an important patron or someone to whom he was going to give it as of some kind of very special offering or gift, which, by the way, would be understood as having 
sacred or perhaps even semi-sacred content because it's about Buddhism. In the in the fragments of the calligraphy, uh, are they ever each individually signed so you can identify the author of the, the, the draftsperson of them, or or is it all having to determine iconographically or or stylistically by the hand of the artist? Akiko. So um, there are different kinds of uh, fragments included in Tekagami. The word, the old calligraphy fragment or old brush fragment, kuisugire, which is what is often used uh, to refer to these pieces. The word kire literally means to cut. But for many of the Tekagami albums, it also included pieces that were disassembled in other ways. For instance, uh, a square poetry card that often originally were used as a set to be pasted in other kinds of albums or folding screen, but taken apart from the original backing and sold as individual pieces and landed in a tekagami. And the other is uh, what is known as tanzaku or oblong poetry slips. And these were used uh, during poetry contests where one would inscribe one's own poem and read during the contest. And afterwards, oftentimes they were gathered and bundled together for future compilation into anthology or other purposes. And in those cases, if the poem is your own poem, the poet calligrapher often signed your own piece. So those are the definitive cases when you know who did the calligraphy. And oftentimes they were used today as a way to identify some other pieces that may be unknown. But for pieces that were taken from codices, in many cases, the information about calligrapher and how the pieces came about uh, were only placed at the reference at the end. So when they were taken apart, you really couldn't, unless you do a stylistic analysis, you really couldn't tell who the calligrapher was. Uh, Ed. And that's why the uh, additional labels called kiwame fuda that accompany each sample are so important. These are written by the appraisers. The appraisers put their seal on the label indicating the name of the calligrapher to whom they are attributing the work. So we're really put in the position of having to rely on the expertise and the accuracy or lack thereof of the appraisers in telling us this is by Fujiwara no Teika or this is by Konoe no Butada or any other calligrapher. See, uh, Akiko, you speak of the arrangement of Tekagami in a book as like the display of works of art in museum galleries. Tell us more about that. Yes, this idea uh, is in one sense inspired by an exhibition that took place in Japan in 1990s or early 2000s that titled itself Tekagami as Desktop Museum. And that, I thought, was a very provocative title. And it's quite spot on in terms of sort of understanding what Tekagami is. And Tekagami, in fact, is kind of an institution. The album format 
existed before the Edo period, but it really became popular in the 17th century onward. And it was used to display two-dimensional aesthetic objects. It could have been a painting, could have been calligraphy, could have been stone rubbings, but it was meant for an aesthetic object. And that is, in fact, different from other ways to store writings and paintings. For instance, hanging scrolls or folding screens, which both existed since the 8th century. But in those cases, they could have been used in, for instance, secular context, devotional context. So the way of storing was not predicated upon the function of the pieces. So you had to see what is inside to understand what something is. Tekagami are often very ornately decorated on the covers with you know, silk brocade and metal corner fittings. And that, too, represents the preciousness and the worth of the pieces that are inside. So even you know, without opening it, just by having the presence of the album, um, can make you understand that you are in the presence of an aesthetic object. Just like if you are in the presence of a museum, you know exactly what you will get, and you know exactly the pieces that are right in there are precious pieces that are worth paying attention to as aesthetic object. So it works very nicely as kind of an institution. And you know, beyond that, in terms of the viewing experience too, Tekagami is organized based on certain conventions, but also on the ideas of the collectors who act as curators. But because of the format, you could open it out to a few pages and look at it together or jump to certain pages. So you have a certain path that is laid out for you to meander through, but at the same time, you have certain liberty how to engage uh, with the pieces that are inside. Just like, you know, if you are walking around a museum gallery and looking at pieces that are on the white wall. So one of the scholars participating in your colloquium, Chris Kersey of UCLA, asked three especially provocative questions, I think, as they pertain to Tekigami. He asked, what is a fragment? Does style have materiality? How are Tekagami related to the history of art history? Ed? I'd like to take a stab at the first difficult question. Uh, I think a fragment can be understood basically as a piece of something that once was or could have been or might still at some future point be part of a whole thing. And I find that I frequently correlate that aspect of the content of tekagami, these assemblages of fragments, with one of the fundamental aspects of classical Japanese poetry, which is my main area of study and research. Because Japanese poems, too, can be thought of as assemblages of fragments. The vocabulary, the repertoire of figures, 
names of birds and flowers and trees and place names and various kinds of formalized expressions and epithets is, although huge, nevertheless limited. And from century to century, Japanese poets made a point of gesturing through allusion to their predecessors by redeploying those figures again and again. So in that sense, the Japanese poem, to my mind, can be characterized also as an assemblage of fragments, things that have been collected and preserved in memory and in text for reuse, redeployment, and to be admired again and again over time, just the way that calligraphy samples in a tekagami uh, can be thought of uh, being there for that purpose. Akiko? Yeah. Um, the relationship between fragment and whole in tekagami is very interesting, complex, and fluid. So in terms of the connection to museum, I often think of tekagami more as a special exhibition rather than a permanent collection or exhibit of permanent collection. Because tekagami as whole is a whole when you finish pasting everything and all the pages are full, then you could consider that as a full assemblage, a holistic idea of a collector um, curator. But it was very common, even in the Edo period, for people to peel off pieces and sell and trade and once you get a new piece that's better or uh, something you like, then you replace and you reorder. So even the tekagami pages uh, were often sized with mica so that it's easy to do that sort of peeling and pasting and repasting. So in that respect, the wholeness of tekagami was never stable. So that sort of idea of wholeness but Unstable whole is something that is very important to understand the tekagami as object, but also tekagami assembling as an activity. Hmm. What, what about the second question? Does style have materiality? Who wants to try an answer to that question? Um, I think uh, when Chris mentioned this, he was talking in terms of how calligraphy interacted with the uh, materiality of the paper. And I think that's very true. So the style is, in a way, part of materiality. If there is an ornament, uh, ornamentation on the paper, calligrapher may choose to begin where the ornamentation starts and stop where there is a break in ornamentation. Then you can't um, fully appreciate the calligraphy without thinking about the materiality of the paper support itself. So I think that's very true. And, you know, I mentioned that that sort of uh, intimate engagement with paper was not necessarily a requirement, but still, because some people did it and thought very carefully about it, all the pieces are potentially a material, very material engagement. And the calligraphy is part of it. And... If the calligraphy is part of it, the calligraphic style is part of the materiality as well. 
What about the last question? How are tekagami related to the history of art history? I would just begin before yielding to the true art historian here, uh, or there are two of them, but one studies Japanese art history, that I, I think tekagamis are a part of the long history of art connoisseurship and help us understand an important phase in the connoisseurial appreciation and the transmission and preservation of calligraphy as an art form. East Asian art holds calligraphy in very high esteem. This is true from ancient times in China. We often associate very dramatic styles of calligraphy with uh, the Zen Buddhist tradition uh, in Japan. But when we look at a tekagami and we think about the collectors and connoisseurs and those who appreciated these writings and wanted to bring them together in this album form in the 17th century, they really did seem to be evincing an interest in what had been valued in the art and practice of writing from the earliest times from which they could retrieve writing in Japan, the eighth century and onwards. Akiko? So um, this question is a very interesting um, and difficult question that needs to be understood or thought about in at least two different ways. One is what art history, quote unquote, means in today's context. And the other is what tekagami meant for the people of the Edo period when these albums were primarily produced. And for Japan, the history of art history as we know it did not really start until the modern period. So it's something that really came about through Japan's renewed interaction with the uh, Western intellectual traditions. And Japan learned how to establish a narrative of Japanese art based on the Western uh, conventions. And within that, Tekagami held an interesting position because of the appraisal system that it used. And calligraphy was the highest of the high form of art in East Asia throughout history until the modern time. And it was surpassed by the Western understanding of art hierarchy. And it, painting and sculpture became sort of top and calligraphy went down a few notches. But the appraisal system that the Edo period professional appraisers were using sort of got carried over to calligraphy studies and until very recently, scientific study of paper was not really conducted on calligraphy pieces. And a lot of the identification of these calligraphy pieces were based on the connoisseurial eye of the scholars. So now that we're doing scientific analysis of paper, scholars are realizing that there were many pieces that were identified to be authentic somebody-somebody was actually an Edo period piece because the paper was Edo period paper. So that's one. The other is how to think about it in terms of the Edo context. If you were to think about history as a kind of consensus, then tekagami definitely 
was something that built that consensus for Edo period people. Tekagami had a convention on how to organize things. And even in the 17th century, there was a very、um, popular printed version of a tekagami that came out in the、uh, mid 17th century that had a preface that said, History of Japanese calligraphy begins with Emperor Shomu. So there is a sense of a beginning of a history of calligraphy. So if that's what people were thinking about and learning, then tekagami practice and tekagami as object. Was an instigator in formulating certain kind of consensus about history of calligraphy in Japan. Then that had a lot to do with the history of art history, I think. All right, let me combine a couple of questions here at the end as we wrap up. First, what did you find especially surprising or illuminating about your colloquium? And second, what are the next steps in your research into Tekagami? Akiko?、Um, so, the colloquium was a, a collaborative effort, but from my part, in many respects, I sort of steered it so that it's most beneficial for me. <laughs> so, there were many、um, illuminating aspects to listening to all the presentations. But one aspect that was particularly illuminating to me was the fact that we were able to make it、uh, into kind of a, a transdisciplinary and trans period gathering of scholars, inviting not just scholars in Japan studies and East Asia, but also from Middle East and、uh, Western context. And I was quite especially happy to invite、uh, David Brafman and Carolyn. Laferriere, who were able to provide、uh, insights into aspects of contemporary LA、uh, graffiti culture, for instance, and in ancient Mediterranean, and how the writing and interact with sound. And all of that, I think, informs my work on Tekagami as I move forward. Ed? Well, both Akiko and I have developed. Uh, websites that are focused on our respective tekagami of interest, hers in the University of Oregon Special Collections and the、uh, Yale Beinecke Library Tekagami Joe.、Uh, these websites are very different in their、uh, formats, but we both seek to assemble,、uh, along with high quality, high resolution digital images. Of each sample in each of these tekagami, as much metadata about them as we can. We've talked about the fact that, in a certain sense, what each text says matters less than many other factors. Nevertheless, we do want to know what the text says. In the case of the、uh, Yale album, we've been able to read and identify the source of about 85 to 90 percent of our. 140 some samples. So there's still a little work of basic decipherment and reading to be done and to add that to the metadata. But beyond that, why would that information be of any use? My hope is that as we move forward with our、uh, Japanese and European colleagues who have great interest in this genre of、uh, artifacts, that we can move beyond the 
extremely expensive work of publishing as books photographic reproductions of the content of Tekagami to a widely open, shareable, digitized format on the web that would allow us to compare the content of all the major Tekagami that we could assemble in such an aggregated site so that then we can see indeed how that page from what is supposed to be Shomu's copy of that sutra from the 8th century looks beside the page that's in three or four or five other uh, Tekagami that might be scattered around the world. And likewise, the 12th century copy of my 10th century Buddhist tale collection, I can see perhaps all the pages of it that are in Tekagami uh, here and there and lay them side by side and be able to develop a different story about how these fragmented texts have traveled, what their journeys have been through time, whose hands have they passed through, and how have they come to rest, say, in the vaults of the University of Oregon's Special Collections, or the Beinecke Library, or the British Library, and so forth. Well, it sounds like there's a lot of work to be done, but I want to thank you both for joining me on this podcast, and we look forward to seeing what comes next at Tekagami. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This episode was produced by Zoe Goldman with audio production by Gideon Brower and mixing by Mike Dodge-Weisskopf. Our theme music comes from the Dharma at Big Sur, composed by John Adams for the opening of the Walt Disney Concert Hall in Los Angeles in 2003. It is licensed with permission from Hendon Music. Look for new episodes of Arts and Ideas every other Wednesday. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcast platforms. For photos, transcripts, and more resources, visit getty.edu slash podcasts, or if you have a question or an idea for an upcoming episode, write to us at podcasts at getty.edu. Thanks for listening. <laughs>